Simple title of this morning's message, The Messiah is Arrested. We have noted that Jesus Christ is on the path to the cross of Calvary. It has already started now. And in our text in John, which we spent a little time on, and, and by the way, I should mention that tonight, I, I, it was an oversight of my part. I just thought of it again. Uh, we look forward to this. Joy Baxter is with us, and he's going to give us an update as to what is going on. So we look forward to see Joy. Just spotted her now. I saw her in the kitchen, and we've been looking forward to that. So that's this evening. So we anticipate that with, with great joy as we look forward to tonight. Okay, but in verses 1 and 2 of our text, we saw that Jesus had entered into Gethsemane. It's not named here, but as we compared last week, we do know that the, this is Gethsemane, what is known as that. We also have come to the realization that this is a private garden, and the garden is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. We tried to give you a little picture of that last week of where the Lord Jesus Christ is physically located and somewhat what the garden would have been like. And we noted also, as is in our text in the first couple of verses, that it was a place of his regular attendance, a place that he went to commonly in the evening to pray. The apostles were very familiar with that, the disciples, and obviously so was Judas Iscariot. And we noted that Jesus had finished praying to the Father. That's what leads us into this on his way there. He has now finished praying to the Father. He had been praying there three times, and his uh, apostles had fallen asleep. Um, he had asked for strength. We know that from comparing to prior weeks. And also, uh, he was looking for the Lord, uh, or the Father, to not only give him the strength, but the encouragement as he was willing to submit to the cup which the Father had for him, and that would be to bear the penalty and the price for sin. And uh, ultimately, as we will move toward that, to bear the wrath of Almighty God something that nobody else could do and only Jesus Christ could do. So today we come to the actual betrayal and the beginning of the arrest before the trials. And uh, it is quite a contrast. I know it should be to you, and I'd like you to look for that as we go through the text and begin to deal with it. And particularly the contrast, there are three main characters that are here, and that's how we set the outline. And one is Judas Another one, obviously, is Jesus Christ, and the third one would be Peter and the rest of the apostles, and I have other things on the headings there for your outline, but notice particularly the contrast, if you will, as we are going through and we read the text, of Judas and of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely amazing, and to me, this particular passage is one of those passages in Scripture that I think is one of the most frightening of all that's recorded in scripture, and also uh, one of the most encouraging by contrast when you see the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we'll do is deal with the betrayer and the crowd because that's what comes into our text. And I think you'll see again this morning, though I will be redundant in saying it to you, and that is you will see that the Lord is in absolute total control. That's why I spent that week on that with you of the circumstances and he does not lose control. But we come to the betrayer and we come to the crowd found in verse three, allow me to read it again. In verse three we see this, Judas then having received the Roman cohort or the cohort and offices from the chief priests and Pharisees 
came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas Iscariot is an amazing character in scripture and absolutely frightening, I think, to us, and you'll see why. But I want you to notice that if you kept your finger in Matthew, I'm not going to turn back to it this moment, but if you have your finger there and you look at, I think it's verse 47, you will find out that every one of the synoptics make a point to say this. John does not. But every one of the synoptics says that he was one of the 12. And I believe that's there for emphasis. And that's what's so frightening about this. Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 that the Lord Jesus Christ had chosen. And what makes it frightening is we know it's Judas because of our text that's going to be involved in betraying him. And to set the scene a little bit, as we begin to deal with the crowds and as we begin to deal with the Roman soldiers and so forth, keep this in mind. It is very clear from the text that Judas is in the front of it. He's leading it. He's the position of prominence as he comes into the garden. He's the one that they are following. And he comes as one of the closest people to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Keep this in mind. He has been under the training personally of the Lord Jesus Christ for at least three years. Think of what we've learned in John. Here he is coming into this garden. Not a one, not a one of the other 11 suspect Judas of anything. You say, how's that possible? Go back to John chapter 13 for a second. Just take a quick look. John chapter 13, we saw this. Verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Judas was there, obviously. The disciples began looking to one another. Look, at a loss to know which one he was speaking about. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him, said to him, tell us, who is it of whom you're speaking? He leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, this is amazing, that it is one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas. Obviously, everybody knows, right? Watch. And I dealt with this text in detail, so I won't now. The son of Simon Iscariot, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him, frightening. Therefore, Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. And since chapter 13, he's been making the arrangements for what we're about to see in chapter 18. And notice verse 28. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he said this to him. What's the matter? Are they dumb? Verse 29. For some were supposing, and this is going to be important to us this morning, because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. That's the last time they saw him. And not a single one of them 
are suspecting him of anything. He's been there with the Lord. He was part of, why? He was also part of, go with me to Matthew chapter 10 for a moment, to see the magnitude of this. To me, it is easy for me in this day and age to look back at this and say, it's obvious, they should have known. And it's obvious to us that Judas was the guy. But I want you to see just how deceptive this man was. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. And watch. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Jump down to verse 4. Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Verse 5. Watch. These 12, Judas is included. Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not enter into any city of the Samaritans, but rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons, freely you received, freely give, do not acquire gold or silver, copper for your money belts. And again, I repeat verse 12, these 12. This is absolutely frightening. This is someone who Jesus Christ has not only ministered to, he gave miraculous gifts to. He went forth preaching. And this is the betrayer. And no one suspects it. Folks, I say this is frightening because it is very possible to look good on the outside, to hand out tracts, and to be lost. And nobody suspect it. Everybody think that you are the cool Christian. Why? Because we can't see your heart. And only God can. There are people that stand in pulpits and are standing in pulpits today. And people adore them. And they're lost. They're lost. There's people that are going around. I want you to understand the magnitude of this passage. And it might shake some up, and I hope it does. One of the saddest things that could ever happen in my life, and I'm sure it's also true for Pastor Stringer or anyone else that's ever given their life to the gospel and the elders, would be to be in heaven and find out people sitting in this audience who have sat here for 25, 30 years won't be there. They looked good, but their heart never came to trust in Christ. This should be a wake-up call. 
frightening. How could they not know? Well, they didn't. He looked the part. He had the language. For all that we know, now maybe you say, well, there's no evidence. We don't see him preaching. The Lord said, go ahead and preach about the kingdom of God. But it was all for show. It was all for conformity. We are living in a frightening day and age today, and I'm going to tell you why. Because of all the technology that's available, and because of all, and you've heard this from me before, professing Christianity. And the tendency is today, in this time, in our day, to just get involved in the emotions and acceptance and excitement when there's nothing to it. Judas was never a part of the body of Christ. And I'll show you why in a little while. But he looked good. He looked good. And this ought to cause us to examine ourselves. Have we gone along? If you've grown up in a Christian family, it's even more of a challenge. Because it's easy to go along with what your parents have done or your teachers have taught. It's got to be a transaction of the heart. And the evidence of the transaction of the heart is a life commitment. We talked about this in a men's meeting yesterday. There will be fruit. And let me encourage all of us who do know the Lord. Don't give anyone a false impression of salvation. If you don't see the fruit, and I'm not talking about just the general happiness or even passing out of tracks, but you don't see the fruit. You don't see the desire. A baby cries because there's life. A Christian reads the word because he has to. A Christian tells others about Christ because there's no choice. It's in them. A Christian weeps over sin out of conviction because the Spirit of God is working. When you see someone that can go along and say, I know Christ, and they can talk about it, and they can look good to everybody else around, I don't care if you get a pat on the back from Pastor Dan or all the elders or a Pastor Stringer, and everybody's patting you on the back and think that you're a wonderful Christian because you're showing well. If your heart has never been converted, if your heart has never been changed, none of that means anything. What was the interest of Judas Iscariot? I can tell you. Money. You say, Pastor Dan. Yes. No one saw it. No one. The people closest to him could not see into his heart. And they didn't know he was driven by money, ultimately. They saw that he was able to perform things. How can you say that? Go back to John chapter 12. We've been building. You're learning. That is why this ministry is so geared on, or my heart is so geared on teaching the word so that people would see, that people would learn. Look at what we've already learned. John chapter 12. Now, you and I can see it as a distance only because God's revealed it to us. 
Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, I'm in John chapter 12, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one reclining at the table with them. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped them with his, his feet with her hair. House was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Remember I told you when we taught this how expensive it was, but notice this. But Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, looks good on the outside. Watch this. Who was intently intending what? On betraying him. You see that? Don't miss that. You say Satan came into him later. Yes. But even before Satan came into him, where is Judas Iscariot's heart? With the Lord? Absolutely not. We only know that because he reveals it to us. They didn't see it. But he's intent on betraying him already. And what does he say? Look at the, how good it looks. Why was the perfume not sold and 300 denarii given to the poor? Why don't you just sell all you did and go and serve the Lord of missions? What difference does that make? Judas' heart wasn't with the Lord. By the way, I'm not trying to discourage anybody from serving missions. That just came to my, my mind. Okay? But what do you see here? He tells us, and that's the only reason we know. Now this he said, not because he was concerned about the poor. Only Jesus could reveal this. But because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, and even on his own disciples didn't suspect it, he used to pilfer what was put into it. He stole it. What's in his mind? Money. What's in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 to 16? I asked you to hold in Matthew. Go back there for a second, Matthew 26. Look at verses 14 to 16. This is why I can say that what was in the heart of Judas was money. Look at verse 14. One of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest, and notice what he says. What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? What despicable statement that is. I will betray the master of the universe if you just pay me the right price. That's what he's saying. They weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him that fulfilled scripture, as you know. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Do you know, or do you understand why, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this? The love of money is the root of all evil. It isn't money. It's the love of it. And it is the root of every single kind of evil, even to the extent of betraying the Messiah. What drove the heart of Judas Iscariot wasn't even being in the in crowd because he fooled everyone around him. He never fooled Jesus. What was in his heart was one thing. And it wasn't the American dollar bill. It was just money. That's all it was. It drove everything he thought about. It was the reason he held the box. It wasn't because he was a good treasurer, because he wanted to steal from it. It was the reason he made himself look good about giving to the poor when he wasn't concerned about the poor at all. He's concerned about the money that got lost. 
I want you to understand when you talk about Judas Iscariot just how low this man is and just how deceiving nobody around him could suspect it. Is it possible? I believe, and you've heard this passage from me so many times. I know, Pastor Dan, will you quit talking about the passage? No. Matthew chapter 7 says this. In that day, listen to the next word, many, many will say to me, haven't, listen, I done many wonderful things in your name. Miracles, professions, and the Lord will say to them, depart from me forever. I never knew you. One of the most frightening passages of scripture. My friend, this is an illustration of it. There will be many, many in heaven. And there will be many who you have and I have had opportunity to witness to that we never found out get saved. But there are going to be many missing that you thought were going to be there. And some of them may be sitting in this audience today. That's how frightening it is. And if that causes you to take a step back, you ought to. You say, well, he, he repented, didn't he? No. He was sorry for what he did, but never a heart change. Well, how do you know that? Who do you think you are? Well, let's see what we learned. Go to John 17. Remember verse 12? While the Lord was praying just moments ago, while I was with them, I am keeping them in your name, which you have given to me. I have guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, the one who is condemned. Why? So that the scripture would be fulfilled, even the one next to him and close to him. He's the only one. Who's the son of perdition? Judas Iscariot. You're in Matthew 26, you can look at it on your own. I believe it's in Matthew 26, and I believe it's verse 24, 23, somewhere around there, where it makes it very clear that it had been better had that man never been born. Why? He's going to spend eternity in hell. The most deceptive person recorded, I think, in Scripture. Can you and I... Deceive others? Yes. Can you and I be self-deceived? Yes. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. It is possible. It is possible because salvation is not of works. Salvation is not outward. It is inward. But that inward change when you have truly come to Christ, listen carefully and you are born again or born from above, you are changed. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. You are no longer a friend of the world because if you are, you're an enemy of God no matter what you look like. All things have become new. 
When I have truly trusted in Christ, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. And I understand that Jesus is my Lord, yes. And I understand that I am, by scriptural definition, his bond slave. I am not my own. I don't just consult with him in prayer when I'm in trouble. That's the sign of an unbeliever. A believer every day looks for the Lord's desire in his life. Doesn't mean we don't sin. Doesn't mean we don't sin. We don't, we don't fall. We don't sin. But what do we do? An evidence of a true believer is when they do sin, they are broken by it and they turn to God. That's an evidence that we are saved. I say, Pastor Dan, now I'm really frightened. Can you really know that you're saved? Absolutely. You say, well, then help me out quick. Okay. John already did it for us. But I want you to see it coming into this passage. Go back to John chapter 6. You say, I believe I've come to the Lord with all my heart. Then don't worry. Why? Remember verse 37, all the Father gives me will come to me. Watch. The one who comes to me, I will try to decipher which to take and which not to take. That's not what my Bible says. My Bible says, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. If God is moving in your heart right now and you're unsure, here's my prayer for you as a pastor. If you're unsure, settle it right there in the pew. Come to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He did suffer. He did die. He is the only one that can satisfy and pay the penalty and price for sin. And come to him with your heart. You don't have to say certain words. It isn't believing for spiritual laws. It isn't doing anything. It's submitting. And when you come, he will not cast you out. And is there any assurance? How about John chapter 10 that we learned? Take a look there. If we're honest, sometimes we have ups and downs. And because we do sin, we wonder if we're really saved. If you're convicted about the sin, there's always conviction about sin but desire to have it right with the Lord, and you go to the light, the Lord, and you're saying, Lord, forgive me, the, the blood of Christ has already cleansed it. And you're coming because you are a believer. If you're trying to live for him, it's because God is working in your life. But if you're going along with the crowd and in your heart, you're really not. And why do I say that? I'm pouring my heart out to you as a pastor right now, in case you're thinking, and if you're saying you pastor Dan, you have negative messages and whatever, I'm, I would rather face the Lord in, in five minutes and say, Father, I did everything I could to present the gospel than to have somebody here and avoid what I'm saying to you. Why? It's so important that you understand and that you come to believe on the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you come to him and you don't just go along with the crowd and, and look good on the outside when there's never been a transaction of the heart. With the heart of man believes, and with the mouth there'll be confession unto salvation. In John chapter 10, watch this. Here's the encouraging part of it. Let me pick it up in verse 28. I give eternal life. Watch that. I give eternal life to them. Who is it? The ones who come to him. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And in case you think the Father could do it, 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father of one. You can't take yourself out of it. When you come to Christ, you say, I've done terrible. Well, then come back to the Lord. Start serving him the way you should by yielding your life. It's a yielding to the Spirit of God. And you know, but what I was about to share with you is the very fact that I have literally stood and taught in home Bible studies, taught from this pulpit, taught in Sunday school classes, poured my heart out, and I have witnessed people that have left this church after receiving the teaching. People leave for good reasons, whatever. Now listen carefully to what I'm saying so I'm not misunderstood. But have left this church and gone and followed Islam. I know of people who have been in this church who have been taught and have gone back to Roman Catholicism. I know people who have been in this church and have been taught and have gone to Mormonism. These are not just hypothetical, real situations. Some who I personally invested a good portion of my time into. How can they do that? It's because they had all of the knowledge they played all of the games, and all they wanted was the world, and they got religion in the world, and they took it. Why do you think Paul's heart was rent when he said, I've been forsaken for this present evil world? They've gone back. Others have made shipwreck. Okay? But as far as saved, unsaved, it comes down to a transaction of the heart. Transaction of the heart. Does any doubt settle it today? Settle it now. Judas looked good. But he's not a believer, folks. He preached. Not a believer. Did miracles. Not a believer. He walked with the Lord and had instruction for three years. Not a believer. And then he could stoop this low, not only to betray him, but what does... Matthew 26 teaches us in verses 48 to 50. It doesn't show that here. It just as Jesus then having received, what did Jesus do? He betrayed him with a kiss. John, um, Psalm 41 in dealing with David, an actual situation, but in verse 9 it says a close friend betrayed me, one that I trusted, one who ate bread with me, and there is application to the Messiah in that as well. What was a kiss? A kiss was a gesture of welcome. It was a gesture, and it still is today, by the way, a gesture of respect. Let me give you a real simple thing. I don't know if any of you ever watched tennis or whatever, but I happened to see a tennis match the other day, and one absolutely destroyed the other one. In fact, I don't remember who the players' names were, but I, what I do remember is it was a guy's game, and they went three sets, and the other guy only won two games in the whole thing. And the first time he won a game, everybody cheered. But after the game, what I want you to get is after the game, they both went up, and even the guys, and gave one another a hug and a kiss on the side. That was respect. Here you've got Judas Iscariot, one of the apostles coming up, and in his day and age, it was one of respect. It was one of affection. It was one of welcome. Can you imagine, because Jesus was fully man, fully God, how he felt? Why? Because he said, with a kiss you betray me? With the most affectionate thing? Can somebody stoop that far? Yes. They can. 
one that was taught, one that was instructed, and with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. But he didn't come alone. He came with a large crowd, according to Matthew chapter 26, verse 47, I believe it is. I'm not turning there. I asked you to hold it there. He says it was a large crowd. Who does he come with? Isn't this amazing? Comes with a Roman cohort. This is a band of Roman soldiers. One man here, by the way. Roman soldiers. Now, you have to put it in perspective. The Passover had just happened. It was very common from the reading I did to have Roman soldiers that were there and available to control the crowds to make sure that nothing happened. But I want you to catch something else, by the way. The Roman soldiers don't arrest Jesus. How do you know that? Because when you compare the text, you find out that they didn't take him to Pilate right away. It was the religious leaders that arrested Jesus. Because the first trial he goes to is the religious leaders. Judas Iscariot leads them and leads them, but the Roman soldiers are there for one purpose, to control the atmosphere. That's all, because of the celebration. Now, how many soldiers? Now, I know most of you are probably going to say 600. It, pro it probably was, but we don't know for sure. A Roman cohort could go, from the reading I did, all the way from 200 to 1,000 soldiers. It was not uncommon in a cohort. But they, they're estimating that it was probably somewhere around 600 at the time, because all of them wouldn't have gone. They would have left some back in the city and so forth. So it's believed that it's probably somewhere around 600. We don't know for sure. But it was somewhere between 200 and 1,000 soldiers that go out there to get Jesus Christ. And that was not uncommon. I'll give you this as a cross-reference so you can look. When they went to arrest Paul, uh, they were gonna, and they were going to, I'm sorry, going to send Paul, 470 soldiers accompanied Paul for one man. If you want to look at that on your own, it's in Acts 23, verse 23. 470 soldiers for him. So somewhere around that is coming just to control the atmosphere. With him, and not just the Roman soldiers, but officers. Who are these officers? These are the officers sent from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were called the temple police. They were also found in John, so I just want you to see that quickly. John chapter 7, verse 32. And I want you to see this again for a purpose that I've been trying to tell you. And that is just how in control Jesus is. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent office to seize him. This is not the first time they did this. But what happened? They couldn't do it. Why? Jesus' time hadn't come. He wasn't going to take the cup yet. So they send him again here now in John chapter 18. So they're the actual ones that make the arrest. These are the temple police. So you've got somewhere around 600 offices. You've got Judas in front of them. You've got somewhere of a crowd of chief temple offices. And according to, and you can look at it on your own, Luke chapter 22, verse 52 is the reference, even the chief priests came. All of these people to come for one man who has been teaching in their presence who has reached out to them, who's created, who's had, excuse me, performed miracles, taught them about the kingdom of God. And so, at a minimum, allow me this, there are hundreds of people that come to arrest Jesus. Hundreds. With the most wicked of them in front of them all, Judas Iscariot. They come with lanterns. They come with torches, according to verse 3. 
They come with weapons. Why? They are coming, probably anticipating resistance, and the soldiers don't want that to happen during this time. They are coming, probably expecting all kinds of violence. Why are they also coming? We know this from the text. They're coming out of greed themselves. That's Judas Iscariot. They're coming out of hatred for Jesus. They hate everything he stands for, the religious leaders. They are coming for protective force. That's the Roman soldiers thinking that there's going to be a big riot. And isn't it interesting, even as Jesus says, that what happens is all these times Jesus has been teaching and they haven't done a thing. Other times they came to him and he, they couldn't even capture him. Why? Now we pick up the shepherd and the savior. Verses 4 to 9, look at it. Isn't it simple? So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him. Do you think he's in control? Hundreds. One of his own. Folks, this is how amazing salvation is. This is why Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He was in total control as he's going to his death. And he goes forth. He went out of the garden. He's in total control. He knows what's happening. But you know what's amazing of all the things that happens here? Is his shepherding. That's why I put that in your notes. His shepherding and as a savior. No attacks, but he's also concerned about who? His disciples. Judas Iscariot. Notice the contrast. Judas comes out to betray him, does it with a kiss. The Lord said, even with a kiss, you did it to me. It doesn't say it in John's account. It does in the synoptics. Do you know what Jesus called Judas? One word. Anybody know it? Friend. What compassion. Somebody came for me and betrayed me like that. Look out. How about you? How about, what do you feel like? How would you feel if your spouse betrayed you? How would you feel if your children betrayed you? How would you feel if the people that you were trusting in betrayed you? People that you poured your life into, they betrayed you. How would you feel? Would you go up to them and say, friend? Jesus did. What does he say? Who do you seek? There's a reason behind this, and I'm losing time, so I need to tell you. Why did Jesus ask this question? Because of his shepherding. Because he's concerned for the disciples. Why? With all of those people coming, and they find Jesus with 11, who do you think they're really going to take? All of them. If, you, if the Roman soldiers want to squash something, right? You take the leader, and you take the rest of them too. They're with him. He knows that their orders are to just get one person, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. That's why he asked them. He reminds them. Who do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. It's me. Who do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. It's me. Let them go. What compassion. What love right to the end. They're going to scatter and in a few moments say, I don't know him. But he is protecting them. What love. 
people say, where is the love of God? Where is the love of Jesus Christ? You think the trials of this life, that that's it? The love is someone that's always looking out, always looking there. In 1712, you find that again when he says, while he was with them, I kept them in your name and I guarded them. And here he is again, chapter 18, guarding them when he says, who have you come to? And notice he says, I am. And that's really what the expression was. And I prefer that personally. I think many times when they do insert English words, they do help us in fairness. And the translators are trying to do a good job, so I'm not trying to be critical of them at all. But I think that statement of I am is so important because that's how Moses was be identified with his people. And through our account in John, we've seen him refer to I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am in that term. And that's what he says to these soldiers. But do you see what happens when they're confronted with the God of the universe? All he does is speak and the storm stops. All he does is speak who he is and even mighty soldiers. You've got to understand this. You guys know history somewhat. Soldiers are trained. They've got weapons. He has none. Piece of cake. They've got hundreds. He's by himself. And he says, I am. And they fall back to the ground. Why? Folks, if that doesn't show you who Jesus Christ is, I don't know what will. These soldiers got it. It's amazing. It is very common. This is the truth. It is very common today among commentaries to say that the Roman soldiers came, this is the truth, came lining up in a line, and one of them tripped, and they fell over like dominoes. Are you kidding me? You talk about reading in the scripture. I would rather take what the word of God says. They heard him say, I am, and they knew without even knowing that they knew that this was the God of the universe, and they fell prostrate in front of him. And it wasn't until he said, wait a minute, aren't you here to see me? Well, uh, Jesus the Nazarene, I'm he. And he says, let them go. I'm the one you want. Why? Because of scripture. Look at verse uh, 11. The Father has given me this. Shall I not drink it? That's why I came. That's why he was praying in chapter 17. That's really what it was all about in Gethsemane. Oh, Father, if it be possible, there is no other way. Why do you think we're so emotional, so taking back at telling people that Jesus Christ is the only way? Because he is. He's God's way. Not about religion. They fell back. They fell back. And as I close it today, you know what else is amazing? <laughs> I, I said they didn't suspect Judas. You know another reason I say that? Look at the third bullet point that I have for you there. Verses 10 and 11, Peter and the apostles. They don't attack Judas. You would have thought that if Jesus is leading, Judas is leading, and he goes and kisses the Messiah, and the Messiah just gets betrayed, if that were me, the first one I'm going after is Judas. They don't go after him. They're going after the chief priests who are next in order, and they happen to catch one of their servants. And by the way, he wasn't aiming for the ear. He happened to miss because the guy ducked, and off came the ear. That's why. 
You notice that? So give credit for a second, by the way. We can put Peter down because he's going to deny him a little bit. But he was, in effect, ready to die, but it wasn't his time right now. But notice, isn't this amazing? I would have thought also that the soldiers right then and there would have taken Peter because Peter came after them, and all of a sudden there's an ear on the ground, and if I were a soldier, the first one I'd go after, you guys got Jesus? Okay, fine, I got him. Right? They don't touch him. Why? Jesus already set the stage. Let them go. And then in the midst of a betrayal, in the midst of a crowd who he's tried to pour out his life to, who are the religious leaders of the day, he performs a miracle. He simply reaches over, puts his hand on the ear, <laughs> and they don't get it. They don't get it. How blind are we? How often, have you ever said this, how can people not understand the gospel? Because we don't get it. It takes a work of God. I would be absolutely, totally lost living in this world if it wasn't for the grace of God. Folks, I love to have a good time. I love to play sports. There's nothing wrong with any of that. There isn't, in spite of some of you that may think there is. There isn't anything wrong with enjoying all that God's given to us. And I even went to all kinds of religious services, but it served for no purpose. It wasn't until by God's grace, he opened up my heart to understand that, you know what? It's only the way that God's chosen that could ever put me in a right relationship with him. And he opened up my understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I had heard it, but it wasn't until he opened up my heart and it's true today with you. And it's also true for those right now who still haven't received it and are hearing it. Why is it that they can't see? It takes the work of God. And it's not because other people believe it. It's because it's true. And here a miracle is done in their presence. Oh, the compassion of Jesus Christ toward Judas, the compassionate part of Jesus Christ toward a servant who had his ear cut off and he's ready to heal him the compassion towards the soldiers who fell back. And he could have said, if he wanted to, just like he did Lazarus come forth, wipe them out. And I wanted you to keep your finger in Matthew because he makes it very clear that if he so desired, he could have asked for legions of angels. You know what that is? A thousand. You know what that means? He's saying, I could have called down 12,000 angels right now and it would have been goodbye for all of you. But that's not the Father's plan. Let me also encourage you as a Christian, when difficulties come up. You know, we're praying for people right now in our assembly that are close to death. Are they going to be able to bear that? Yes. God will give them the grace. We want to pray for that, for strength. Are you going to face trials and you're not going to know how to handle it? God will give you the grace. He will give you the strength to depend upon him. But be willing to bear whatever it is. That is the sign of a true Christian. It isn't get me out of here. It's, Lord, I don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. Give me the strength. Help me to depend upon you. 
just as the son did here. Shall I not drink this cup? It's meant for me. Such as I really appreciate getting that background to the song. It's so helpful to understand where people were coming from, ready to go into glory that day, and did. How does that happen? Only the grace of God. Only the grace of God. What a wicked scene. I close with this. There's so much more that I could say and haven't totally done justice to the text. But if we catch this, that is it possible to be deceptive and self-deceive and deceive others? The answer is yes. And don't let that happen to you. Because the day's coming, you're going to die. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. It is a transaction of the heart. That's our appeal to you. If you've trusted in Christ, there may be some things for you to bear that you don't understand. God will give you the strength. Trials you might have to go through. Even sometimes you'll fail. Did the apostles fail? They'll fail. They're going to scatter. Peter, who's bold in this moment, in just a few moments, will deny the Lord, but the Lord will never forsake them. Why? That is the joy. If you've come to Christ, you have the gift of eternal life. It is eternal. It is forever. He will never let you go. And even in the most difficult of times, he's looking to protect us. What a shepherd we have, the good shepherd. What an interceder we have, according to Hebrews, who intercedes forever for us. Thank the Lord we have such a Savior. Might the Lord give us compassion for what the Lord went through, but to see beyond it how he never lost control and never can stopped loving and just how deceptive the human heart can be. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, my heart's prayer for this audience is that if anyone in this room is deceiving themselves, is putting on a show, when in reality is either like Judas, a lover of money rather than a lover of God, or maybe it's some other area of our life, love the world and have become an enemy of God, I pray that you'd reveal that to them personally and that, Father, right there in the pew, they would settle it before you and come with open arms as you work in their heart. For you promise if they come that way and you're working in their heart, you will in no wise cast them out. Father, I pray that you'd help them to put away the facade if it's been for years and people would be shocked to hear that they just got saved. Father, I pray that you'd give them the humility to just come to salvation today and put that all aside. For those of us that truly know you, I pray that we'd see this compassionate scene even toward Judas's enemy. No wonder you tell us to love our enemies as you gave us example. To see the compassion and protection that you had for your disciples and are so grateful for the way you watch over us and protect us. And Father, while we won't bear a cup like the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that you perfect us through trials and they're never fun. But Lord, help us to be willing to submit and obey them, that you might have glory through our lives. I pray that we'd be stronger as an individual and stronger as a people in a local assembly and help us to serve you with joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.